Thank you guys for joining us this afternoon at Zoe Community Church. My name is Vin, and I'm one of the lay elders here. And just a little bit about me, I'm, uh, I grew up in California, but through circumstances, I was able to have the opportunity to go to Louisiana, where I met my wife. We got married, and then we moved to Alabama. And now we're here in Texas, and we live just north of here in McKinney. So if you're visiting just for the first time, and I want to welcome you and let you know we'd love to connect with you and just kind of meet you and say hi um, after service. So just don't leave too quickly. But let's go ahead and pray for this afternoon and this time we have in God's Word. Dearly Father, Lord, as we come before you, we pray, Father, that you would set our minds upon what you would have for us through your Word. to set aside the things that might be distracting us, holding us down, the things that tempt us or entice us, Father, to put our hope, our trust, and our joy in. We pray, Father, for the transformation of your word, that as we gather today, Father, help us to receive it, to see how it applies to our life, that we would be brought higher to what it means to recognize and to be who we are in Christ. We thank you for your word, the completeness of the work of Christ. As we gather, Father, we pray for transformation, submission, Father, and application in our lives. We thank you and lift these things in your son's name. Amen. In the 1400s, John Huss was an early reformer who was a priest in Prague, known today as the Czech Republic. See, some would consider John Huss to be the first reformer because he opposed many aspects of the Catholic Church. Throughout his ministry, he was influenced by the study of God's Word and the teaching of John Wycliffe. And as a result of this growing conviction, he felt that the church needed a radical reformation. In John Huss's book, The Church, he wrote, Neither is the Pope the head, nor are the cardinals the whole body of the true, holy, and universal church. For Christ alone is the head of the church. This last point bothered the Roman Catholic Church because the Pope considered himself the head of the church. And as you would expect, over time, tensions grew, and efforts were made to silence John Huss. In 1414, the church granted John Huss safe conduct to meet at the Council of Constance. And we'll kind of, we'll return to this as we continue on. But since I've been coming to Zoe, stewardship has been something that's been encouraged since the beginning. We're stewards of what God gives us, so what are we going to do with it? See, I remember early on in the life of the church, there was this sense of excitement. Everyone had to pitch in and help in a certain way. New members were coming. People were meeting together. And the ebb and flow of ministry seemed to form around the word of God. Together, as a body, we hope to grow in depth 
and trusted that God would take care of our breath. See, I praise God looking back on this time because there was this enthusiasm and energy in the life of the body. And to be honest, I feel this way today. You know, I get to talk to some of you guys, and it's awesome. It's encouraging. I really praise God for that. And as we consider our series, Faithful with More, and this year's building campaign, looking back and looking forward, this is an opportunity and a way for us to see God's faithfulness. Over the years, it's a joy to be a part of what God is doing here at Zoe. And my prayer is that as we consider this building campaign and maybe a more permanent site, we just don't think, sorry, we just don't thank God only if we get a building, but that in this process, God would be praised and glorified. And so let's take advantage of this before and as we pray and grow as stewards of God's gifts. Let's turn to our passage this afternoon, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse one through three. And in particular today, we're talking about how Christ is Lord of the church. We must consider, though, what that means individually and for us corporately. Each of you, aware or not, contribute to the larger dynamic and life of the church. So that in a church this size, those who have been here longer face the temptation of indifference Maybe complacency, because that honeymoon period is kind of worn off. You feel that it's all the same, week in and week out. So understandably, if we come to church and our priorities are in the wrong things, it's easy to become picky or critical of the church. In large part, this is a symptom of a consumer-driven behavior towards the church. That's why commitment is hard. It's because people are shopping churches. They come mainly to see what is it that the church can do for them. What can they get out of the church? Soren Kierkegaard, who was a critic of the church during his time, wrote this. People have an idea that the preacher is an actor on stage and that they're the critics blaming or praising him. And what they don't know is that they're the actors on stage. And he, being the preacher, is merely the prompter in the wings, reminding them of their lost lines. The church is not merely a group of people like a country club or service group like United Way, but we're different. We're the church of God under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This afternoon, I'm thankful for this opportunity to serve you in this way, to look through this text together. And I pray this idea of Christ's lordship over the church might bear fruit for you and for us as we share life together in the body. So let's read our text. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those in every place, 
call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For us to get a better understanding of our text, I think it's important that we look at the city of Corinth. And what I mean by that is we need to look at the context. The city was located on the Isthmus of Greece, and what that means is that it was surrounded by two bodies of water. On one side, this made it a strategic position because you could trade with all of Asia. On the other side, this made it a strategic position because you could trade and, and, um, with all of Italy. It was a populous city that had a melting pot of cultures and values and priorities. And because of its location, it made it a great route for business. And some of you might be thinking or imagining in your head right now, this reminds me of modern-day New York or California or Los Angeles. Ethnically, the church was primarily Gentiles, which means that their background didn't come from, uh, that they didn't have a background uh, that was Jewish. Religiously, the city was associated with various religions and temple worship, right? This is understandable. People were coming and going all the time. Socially, wealth and status played major roles in the dynamic of the people's relationships. Yeah, it's for these reasons these believers in Corinth struggled to give up their old way of life and be who they were supposed to be in Jesus Christ. And throughout the book, Paul addresses and instructs the Corinthians because of what he heard about their immaturity and that they needed to grow up spiritually. The church was in the world as it had to be, but the world was in the church as it shouldn't be. The believers in Corinth face the same difficulties many of us in America face today. And as we seek to pursue a life of holiness and Christ-likeness, we often regress or backslide into old struggles and sins that we just can't seem to shake. And with every struggle the church in Corinth encountered, Paul's answer was simple, but yet powerful. Over and over, he offers them hope and encouragement by looking back to the cross. This is applicable for us today. If we boil down the purpose of this letter, it's that believers in Corinth need to be who they are, which is God's holy people. But this afternoon, we'll be looking at this introduction, our first three verses. So the purpose of our text is that we might... Consider what it means to be God's church under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as we look through the text, we'll break it down into three parts. Christ sanctifies his church. Christ's supremacy in the church. And Christ sustains his church. Let's jump into it. Christ sanctifies his church. Here, Paul uses the typical conventions of his time. He writes a letter identifying who he is and who it's to. And if we look too quickly, we can miss something Paul might be doing. We get hints and echoes of what Paul is hoping to do to encourage the Corinthians. The church's struggle with worldliness and its effects on the church was concerning to Paul. Factions were forming. 
And so his priority is to remind the Corinthians how the work of the cross not only saves them, but calls them to live a certain way. Paul begins by highlighting his apostleship and to point out that he was not sent or called from any church or person, but that he was called by the will of God. He was a man that was commissioned, seized by God's grace for God's purpose. And when we think about this and look at Paul's life, this is a complete 180. Before his conversion and call to be an apostle, Paul was a Pharisee, someone who persecuted the church. When Stephen was stoned to death, this is like right out of a movie. The book of Acts tells us Paul was there and approved of his execution. It's like that image of a villain or the big boss that comes out for the first time as you watch the movie and lightning strikes, right? But then God supernaturally, by his grace, worked in Paul's life. This was shocking to the believers. This man who was creating so many problems and hated the church is now part of the church. And understandably, they weren't sure what to think. I would too. Right? When Paul was converted, God called him and commissioned him. And we see this interaction in, in, in Acts 9. And this is what it says. But the Lord said to him, being Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul was an instrument called by God's grace as an apostle. In our, in our text, Paul wasn't a stranger to the Corinthians. So for anyone hearing this letter, Paul's kind of insertion or addition of apostle might have caused them to perk up. What do you mean? We know you. And at first glance, it's kind of natural. You would think, hey, Paul's using this to kind of flex his authority. Hey, man, I am talking to you as an apostle. But that would miss Paul's encouragement to the church. Paul is highlighting the fact that his apostleship is a means to display the risen Christ through life and conduct. And so since the Corinthians were struggling, Paul is hoping to instruct, to bring clarity to how they should be as God's chosen people. In verse 2, Paul calls the Corinthians the church of God. They're not the church of any person in particular, any one individual or city or elder. Rather, the church belongs to God because it's made up of God's people. The word for church is ekklesia, which means an assembly or gathering. In the Greek world, this refers to a social group, maybe a guild a trade group that was happening, and this is understandable, right? This area is so popular, it was bustling. In the New Testament, ecclesia is meant to refer to an assembly of God's people. And this ought to give us pause as we consider the church. The term refers to people who gather together rather than to a building. Often in Scripture, believers are not encouraged to go to church. 
but rather they are to meet up with the church. Recently, maybe because of all the uh, election season is happening, I saw this infographic that had polled Americans, and I thought it was interesting. I, I showed my kids, and this is what the poll had asked. How many of you would consider yourself Christian and attend church regularly? And as I was looking this at this, and my kids were asking me, most of the states weren't above 20%. This is a complete indictment on many that claim to be part of the church. Not meeting together goes against what it means to be the ecclesia, the church of God. You cannot be the church if you don't meet together. And since Paul called to be an apostle to display the risen Christ, the church too must be a community that displays who Christ is. Paul makes the point that the church is an assembly of God's people sanctified in Christ Jesus. And when you hear this word sanctification, sanctify, you may be thinking of this lifelong process of becoming more like Christ, which is true. But the word Paul uses here is different. The word does mean set apart, but there's three different ways for us to think about this. The first, the one you may be thinking about right now, is that ongoing process. We're becoming more like Christ. Here, a believer is being sanctified. This is sometimes referred to as progressive sanctification. The second use refers to a future time. When believers are perfectly sanctified, meaning that we are free from the presence of sin and its possibility. Often this corresponds with glorification. And the third use, and the one that we're looking at today, is when believers are designated, they're set apart when we're saved, meaning that we are sanctified, we are set apart. This is now our status and position before God. Maybe in simpler terms, this highlights the idea of what it means to be part of God's family, that you are now a child of God. People would call this positional or definitive sanctification. This idea comes from the Old Testament. We see this idea played out with the temple, where certain tools or aspects of their worship was designated, set apart for a purpose, for a certain time and a certain use. Here, Paul uses that idea of set apart to describe the church of God. The grammar for that word sanctified is something called a perfect tense, and I think it'll benefit us, hopefully, I pray. And what I mean by this perfect tense is that there's an action that was completed at a certain time that has benefits for us and ramifications that are ongoing and future. The picture that is given to us is that salvation happened for us when we repented and we believed in the work of Christ. Therefore, we're set apart. That's the past action. Now, because of this work, we're eternally saved. We're going to continue in this state forever. 
That's this ongoing result and ramification. Therefore, believers, a possession, a believer's possession of their salvation is based upon one thing, and that is the faith accomplished at the work at the cross. We are the church of God, so we must behave like the church of God. Positional sanctification is always accompanied by progressive sanctification. Believers are meant to grow up in their faith. The church in Corinth must practically be what they were positionally. That same idea applies to us. Zoe Church, we must practically be who we are positionally. Again, the church isn't a group of ordinary people just hanging out. We're called out as a community that is set apart for God's purpose and to encourage one another in faith. In the past, I had this opportunity to go overseas on a mission trip, and part of this trip allowed us to go and visit a um, uh, uh, an area that had uh, floating, they called it the floating village because it was um, on a lake region. Now, their homes were on the water, and so you could imagine it was hard to have kind of basic amenities, right? You know, you, you really didn't find running water. It was hard to get electricity. They had to use batteries. And storing food was hard because they didn't have a refrigerator. Now, one of the difficulties they had was that they couldn't get really clean water. And I remember, I remember our team was talking to the missionary, hey, what do you think about the possibility of doing this outreach that included bringing them water filters? You know, that this would give us an opportunity. We'd connect with the people. We would do them some good, and this would really allow us to share life together with them. This was something practical. It would benefit their community. And this is what he said. We thought about that. And actually, we tried a while back. What we found was after giving people the water filters, people just didn't use it correctly. We'd follow up and we'd visit with them. We asked how things are going and we would look in the corner and we would see that instead of using the water filter for what it was supposed to be, they were using it as a flower pot. Other people, we would follow up with them and they, they use it as a storage container for their kitchen utensils. These people failed to use the water filters correctly because they failed to see its intended purpose. Similarly, we run the risk of failing to be God's people, set apart for God's glory and redemptive purpose. We keep our eyes off Christ. A recurring thing the elders continue to pray for is that we would grow in our understanding and application of stewardship and that this really would bear life for us in the church. Whether we get a building or not, the church is still God's people, not the building. And as we pray and wait to see how God will work, we can't lose sight of our identity, one that is found in Christ. And if we think about the Corinthians for a moment, their struggle isn't too different from us today. The church is called to be different from the world, but when we look at the current landscape of our modern church, we don't seem to be that much different. Our actions 
suggests that our greatest good can and will be found on this earth, not in Christ. And as those who are set apart, there's one love that we shouldn't have, and it is love with the world. God's church must be overflowing with Christ in all aspects of our lives. And so consider this. When we have shared interests or hobbies with other people, does it just stay there? Rather, the church of God should use these opportunities to point others to Christ. Are we people looking for security and satisfaction in our careers or the size of our bank accounts? And because of that, we'll feel okay. But those who are sanctified should be diligent. They should be honest, working hard, but trusting that God is the one that provides. Maybe our attitudes, our our happiness depends on the circumstances or what's going on around us. God's saints are people that know who they are in Christ and will live by faith, choosing joy and trust regardless of our situation. How we respond to the challenges in this world reveal what we believe to be true. Our theology and our understanding of who we are before God displays every day by our actions is displayed every day by our behavior and our actions. Friends, our entanglement with worldliness is not who we are in Christ. And that is the tension. We have security in Christ, but there's still responsibility and room for spiritual effort. We have to fight for this. We have to fight for this as a church. Our calling isn't always thought of or considered in the context of a group or a body. We aren't saved, though, so that we can go into isolation apart from everyone else, telling ourselves that, hey, it's only me and Jesus. Instead, we do this together. At least for us here, it is in the namesake of our church, Zoe Community Church. We must consider who we are as God's people. Those sanctified to enjoy the abundance of God's blessing because as Lord, Christ sanctifies his church. Let's jump to point two. Christ's supremacy in his church. Paul says, They're called to be saints together with all those. In every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours. Paul shifts their focus, reminding the Corinthians that they're part of a larger church. As part of this church family, they must conform to Christ in doctrine and in practice. Paul says that Christ is Lord of the church. So no person or church has a unique claim that they are the church. The word Lord is repeated twice here and eight times throughout the chapter. And to his hearers, this bears significance. The Greek word for Lord is kyrios, kyrios, which means owner, 
master, the supreme one, uncontested power. Because the Corinthians were part of this Roman province, the idea of Lord was ingrained into their culture. In respect to the emperor, the citizens of Rome would burn incense and say that Caesar is Lord. Understandably, the early Christians refused to say this in principle and in practice. It's for this reason that many of the believers were imprisoned. They're tortured and put to death. Looking back, there's this interesting thing. To the Romans, Christians weren't forbidden from worshiping God. People were free to worship any God as long as they acknowledged that Caesar was Lord. The Romans were tolerable. They had many gods. But when Christians refused to say that Caesar is Lord, they were executed. The title Lord has little impact or meaning for us today. The authority and the weight that it bears on a person's life and in the community is powerless in our culture. Unfortunately, this sentiment is often a characteristic of the church, and it's reflected by our priorities. As we look at our text today, the title Lord doesn't just refer to an office or title, a salutation. It refers to the authority because Jesus is God. Our culture scoffs at this idea of authority because it goes against our nature. This is a hard teaching because we naturally want our own way our own preferences, and that's why submission and obedience is so hard. Submitting means that we yield our desires and wants to a greater purpose. Paul, in the New Testament, often uses imagery to convey this point. He uses marriage. He uses the body and the head to show the authority of Christ. As we read earlier, Colossians 1 tells us, He, being Jesus, is before all things. And in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's why for believers, Jesus as Lord means more to us. He has authority because he is God. That means he is sovereign. He has ultimate power and might. He is Lord of all, so we owe him all. Therefore, we are to live under his rule, submitting, conforming, and transforming our will to his. I know that's a lot. So in short, this is basically obedience. Believers are set apart in Christ and must respond in obedience because Christ is also Lord of our lives. His supremacy reigns over the church. Instead of growing and maturing by conforming to the image of Christ, we resist. We're like children who just do what we want and easily get distracted. Right? I get it. Listening and obeying is hard. I've got four kids. 
And each night, you could probably imagine routine is, is helpful to us, but it can also be hard. Now, part of our routine is that we ask them, after I look around, we go, hey, it's time to clean up. And we're going to do a walk around, and as we walk around, if you see something that doesn't belong there, you just put it up. Just put it up. Now, on a few occasions, we're supposed to be cleaning, and I look around, and for some reason, it's just quiet on one side of the house. And I go and I check, and I, I look, and there's still a mess, so I, I, I just kind of look. And I'll ask, hey, is, uh, are you guys done cleaning up? And this is what I'll hear. I said, no, no, no. I actually went to the kitchen, and I drew you this picture. In fact, it's a picture of you and mom. And it says, I love you. See, this is sweet and all. But is this obedience? And is this doing what they were supposed to do? And when we look at our Christian walk, isn't this how we act sometimes with the church? Rather than responding in obedience, we make excuses about responsibilities and other things that we need to do. They're not bad in and of themselves. They are good. You need to work. You need to spend time with your kids and those things. I'm not saying those things are bad, but when they come to a point that replaces who Christ is in our lives, we should be careful. We fail to even do the simple things of praying, reading, and communing with God daily. Far too often, we're too wrapped up in ourselves and distracted with the world. And even though we attend, attend church, it's hard for us to get on board with what the church is doing in terms of growing together, so we just fall flat when we come. We attend, but for these other reasons. For many, Jesus is part of their lives instead of the point of their lives. We often look at life like a laundry list of priorities. Okay, so there's school, there's work, there's family. Let me prioritize, look at this, so that in a way I'll, I'll set church first and then these things will fall into place. So that, hey, we show up on Sunday, we set aside time for Christ, but on Monday when my coworker is driving me crazy, I just lose it on him. When Christ is Lord... Life isn't just a laundry list of priorities, but rather he is first in your marriage, also in your parenting, also in your career. He is first in your dating. He is first of all things in your life because he is the Lord of your life. Christ's supremacy must reign in our lives individually and as a church. If we have Christ, we have the blessing that God intends for the church. Which is what Paul encourages us as we close our text. Let's look at point three. This leads us to our last point. Christ sustains his church. Paul closes this salutation or greeting by saying, Grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it could help us by looking at a, another translation, and this is what it reads. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. This essentially functions as a prayer from Paul to the church. Much like partaking in the Lord's Supper, there's this alluding to our remembering of salvation by God's grace that gives us the spiritual nourishment and strength. Right, This idea, when I was looking at this, is interesting because Paul gives these two blessings in every one of his epistles. If read too quickly, we can think this is just a throwaway statement that Paul is doing, but he is saying he wants this for the church then and for us today. These two blessings are for those in the church. And the blessing comes from God the Father, and they flow through Jesus, Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, Paul expresses his desire that the Corinthians would experience more of God's grace and a deeper measure of God's peace in their lives. The word for grace is unmerited favor, this fullness. And here, Paul is not referring to saving grace because the Corinthians were already saved. They were God's people, sanctified. Rather, he is referring to grace that we need each day. This is our sustaining grace. When we're in step with God's will for our lives, we experience greater grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. We see this in the New Testament. 2 Peter verse 1, 2 tells us, Peter prays for those who are in trouble that, gra- that, that their grace may be multiplied. In John 1, 1, 16, John prays for his disciples that of Christ's fullness, the believers would receive grace upon grace. Grace can be multiplied and received in our lives. And this grace is what God gives us each day. Take this into consideration. When we receive receive grace from God in terms of our salvation, this isn't the end of it all, but rather it is the beginning of our spiritual journey depending on God. We need this grace to become more Christ-like, to be transformed and renewed daily to grow in, in um, spiritually. So of the two blessings of grace and peace, grace must come first. We must be saved before we can have peace. The idea of peace alludes to the Jewish phrase shalom. And the phrase means wholeness or completeness. True shalom comes from God because it encompasses God's vision of how relationships and the world should be. This imagery is of a perfect fellowship and peace that was enjoyed in the Garden of Eden and the one that is in the age to come. Therefore, peace alludes theologically to our salvation and relationship with God. Without peace, we need reconciliation or a need to fix that broken relationship 
We need to be reconciled because man in our natural state is at enmity with God. That means that we are alienated, separated, hostile to a holy, perfect, and righteous God. Theologians often refer to the separation from God as original sin. And this doesn't refer to that first sin, but rather our human nature. When sin entered the world, we cannot have peace. We can't have the peace of God until we experience peace with God. And we see this in Romans 5. Paul tells us that those who are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, believers no longer have a broken relationship with God. Because we're at peace. And that peace is by reconciliation. And for many of us here today, that is the good news. And so consider this. The good news is only as good because of how bad the bad news is. And we get this. Right? If you have a bigger debt to pay, then you're much happier if it's forgiven. Believers can experience confidence because of what we have. Because what we have is the certainty and the completeness of Christ's work. And as we think about this, a lot of times it, it does feel like a paradox. You're to grow up in faith or increase in faith, but your confidence is only as strong as what you put your faith in. A famous pastor put it this way. It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to a weak faith in a strong branch. We can be sincere in our faith, but this doesn't make it right. This actually is how cults think. You can be genuine. Believe what you think, but if your genuine faith is in something that is wrong, it is still wrong. And if it isn't a cult, it's our natural sense, what we might be dealing with each day, it's an idol. If only you had that career. If only you're in that relationship. If only your health is just a little bit better, then you'll follow God. We make little gods and things of this world to fulfill and sustain us in ways that only Christ can. And because of that, there is no peace. The church must embrace the object of our faith, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only, that, it's only through this that we can enjoy the full measure and benefit of grace and peace in the life of the church. Some of you know that I'm a healthcare worker as an eye doctor, and one thing, kind of trend that I've seen in the past few years is this increase in ordering glasses online. It's, that's no problem for me. I don't sell glasses, so it's, I'm, this is not a plug, sorry. And so it's common now 
for people to kind of take this chance, right? They're going to order these glasses because it's just easier. And as a byproduct, I've seen this kind of increase in people who are concerned from their, um, hey, are my glasses even made right? And, you know, is this, you know, did they even do it correctly? Now, I remember a time when one of my patients called uh, to let me know that, you know, she was wearing her glasses and she was experiencing this kind of dull headache and uh, she was getting blurry. Maybe by the end of the day, her head was hurting. And, I, I, you know, I asked her, well, what's going on? Are you eating okay, sleeping okay, right, right? And then, so I, I don't really want to ask her. I said, well, where'd you get your glasses, you know? I don't sell glasses, okay, but. Oh, she's like, oh, you know, I got them online. And um, she's like, I just want to know, you know, what, what, what can I do? So she's so fed up at this point. She's so concerned. She's, you know, she's asking me, do I need to go get an MRI? What this patient was experiencing after meeting up with her and having her come in was something called prismatic effect. And which means that the farther your eyes are from the optical center of the lens, the more, the more distortion you have. Right? The detrimental effects aren't the same for everyone, right? It depends on your prescription and your sensitivity. But this is the idea that only when your glasses are centered correctly that your eyes matches, you know, when the eyes match the sweet spot of the lens, do you enjoy the full benefit of your glasses? So I know, I'm sorry, there's a bunch of you that have LASIK, and you're probably like, I don't know what's going on, okay? But when the alignment is off, then the optics are off. And too often, people don't enjoy the full benefits of good quality vision because they accept that this might be the norm. Sorry, so I care about this as an eye doctor. Now, we're not here to talk about glasses and optics, but rather our spiritual vitality. What causes the optics of our spiritual lives to be so distorted? What desires Habits have we cultivated in our hearts that threaten our spiritual clarity? Maybe for some of us, our spiritual life is so fuzzy now that we think this is just the norm. This is the way things are supposed to be. So we take this spiritual inventory. We throw our hands up in the air and we just accept this is the status quo. This is how my relationship with God is just going to be. But we can't. The church can't. A life centered on Christ allows us to enjoy the full blessing and joy of our salvation. Let's think about it a different way. If Christ were to return today, what would be your response? Would Jesus be someone you learned about or heard stories about? Or do you have a personal relationship with him. See, would our hearts rejoice in his return? Or are we going to be a little disappointed? You know, we didn't get to do those things. We didn't get to see the kids grow up. I still got these things on my bucket list I was hoping to do. I'm just a few years from my pension. Oftentimes, Jesus is explained 
or talked about, but that is just where it ends. He calls us into a personal relationship with him through faith and repentance. There's a relationship there with benefits that you might be able to receive as his blessing. So that through this relationship, we can enjoy the blessing of his sustaining power through grace and peace. There's some of you today who find yourselves pulled by the treasures and pleasures that this world offers. And much like Vanity Fair in Pilgrim's Progress, the world offers endless joys that distract us from walking faithfully with the Lord. In fact, I think sometimes we just make faith complicated. And the reason for that is we just take our eyes off of Christ. And it doesn't have to be this way. I want to read to you this conversion story. And, and I, thought, I, I think it could help us. And this is what it reads. It was a winter day, and I praised God for sending this storm. You know, I stumbled in a little primitive Methodist chapel, and there was no more than 10 or 15 people. And as I waited, realizing the minister wasn't able to make it, I saw a gentleman walk up to the pulpit to deliver the message. The text from Isaiah 50, 45, 22 says, Look unto me, and you'll be saved all the ends of the earth. He didn't, even, he didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There in the text was a glimpse of hope for me. He began like this. My dear friends, this is a simple text. Indeed, it says, look. Now that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man doesn't need to have gone to college to learn how to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Look at me. Hey, he said, many of you are looking to yourselves. No use in looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourself. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look at me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look at me, I am hanging on the cross. Look at me, I am dead and buried. Look at me, look to me, I rise again. And look to me, I ascend, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. And when he ended after about 10 minutes, he looked at me, and I dare say with so few present, he knew I was a stranger. He then said, young man, you look very miserable. And well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to having remarks made about my appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow. And so he continued. And you will always be miserable. Miserable in life, and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. Then the man shouted as any, then the man shouted, young man, look to Jesus Christ. 
And this is his reflection. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with all the saints about the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This person was the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Some of you may be sitting here and thinking, well, I'm not really ready to make a decision. Before you know it, weeks pass, months, and years. The reality is not making a decision is actually making a decision. To be practical, we experience and enjoy the fullness of God's grace by faith. And this requires a decision. His work on the cross ought to produce in us praise and worship that rightly exalt him for who he is, the Lord of all. So let's close our time. So we think back at John Huss. See, John Huss arrived at the Council of Constance, and it was clear that his safe conduct was a ploy rather to try to convict and to condemn him. The council commanded him to recant, which he courageously refused to do. On July 6, 1415, John Huss became a martyr. We should pause at least for a moment to think, what is it that gave John Huss such confidence? When John Huss died... To that region, it seemed that the power and hope in the church had yielded its authority to the Pope. But from God's word, we see Jesus tell us, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He didn't say that the gates of hell will not attack it, but that they shall not prevail. John Huss was burnt at the stake And as he died, he prayed, much like Stephen, Lord Jesus, it is you that I endure. It is you that I endure this cruel death with patience. Have mercy on my enemies. The church today needs to have that same resolve and conviction in the authority of Jesus Christ. I know that his life from one aspect might seem like it was a waste. He was despised, he was persecuted, and he died. But in another sense, he continued to have faith to the point of death. And that should give us hope as we look around and see the struggles and battles that the church faces today. There was a peace that John Huss experienced in the face of opposition that we as a church can experience now. His hope was in the solid rock that is in the immovable and unchangeable Christ. His life did not submit in the face of opposition because he found rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. We too must find rest in the Lord Jesus, individually and corporate. We must be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because our work is not in vain. 
So church, let's be faithful to carry the seed of the gospel daily. Christ is Lord. We do the watering. We'll do the planting. And and then let's let God take care of the growing. Let's pray. Dearly Father, Lord, we thank you for this afternoon. We thank you for your word that reminds us of our reconciliation and peace that we can have with you through your son, Christ. We pray that we would recognize and see who we are before you, that you are the God of all, that you did not use this power selfishly, Lord, but that you would humble yourself coming to this world to die on the cross for our sin, that whoever would have faith in him, Father, would have eternal life, forgiveness of our sins, and peace with you. Lord, I pray that you would continue to sustain us, that you would keep us, that our grace and peace would abound. All the more to your glory. We thank you, Lord, and lift these things up in your son's name. Amen.